Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 53rd Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So, the 53rd Academy Awards. The 53rd, a classic. The films of 1980. It's exciting. We're four years later than our last episode, which is funny since we just used a random number generator to do this. Right, but I think there's a number of sort of fun synergies between the two years, which we'll talk about. And it's also an interesting year to compare, right? Because in 1976, we had these four sort of clear front runners, as much as four things could be clear front runners. But I mean, like four pretty iconic movies that are all still culturally relevant today. And I think this year is much more complex. I think I we're going to have a couple of things we think should have been nominated, but it's also, I think, really going to let us dive into some of the questions that we want to explore throughout this podcast. How do you evaluate a film in in the face of critical backlash after sure. it's been honored or a new critical consensus? And also something that I've really wrestled with this week and I'll talk about throughout the episode is how do you separate your subjective experience of a film from what you're attempting to have be an objective analysis? Right. And does such a thing exist in art, really? Right. Because you and I have talked many, many times about how if a piece of art works for you emotionally, if it's evoking the emotions it's trying to evoke, at some baseline level, that just means it works, right? Yeah. And so it does that, I think, motivated reasoning, right? You end up working from a place of like, let me explain why this works for me emotionally. And if it doesn't work for you emotionally, you're working from a place of there must be something wrong with it because it's not hitting me the same way it hits other people. Which is an interesting way to think about it when like clearly there's something right about it that's working for those people. Right, (laughs) right. Is it something wrong or right with the movie or is it just that everyone has their own subjective experience with every movie and it's impossible to come up with an objective ranking of artworks? (laughs) I mean, it's probably the second one if we're being totally (laughs) honest. Yeah, but you're right that if you viscerally react to a movie in an emotional way and you love it, your logical part of your brain is constructing reasons why that means that it is logically a great movie and not just emotionally something that works for you. So that's a tough thing. We're definitely going (laughs) to this week get into a conversation of how do you try to objectively evaluate a movie that maybe isn't emotionally resonating for you, but critical consensus would tell you is resonating for other people. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'm excited to talk about this year. Me too. And I think there are a lot of things that I've been ready to talk about since I watched these movies a couple weeks ago. So ready to get into it. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about the year 1980 itself. What's going on? Where are we in history? A lot is going on. We're at a very interesting point politically. Especially relative to 1976 again, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So 1980 is the is the year that Ronald Reagan wins the election. So we're entering mm-hmm. a new decade. Politically, things are going in a very different direction. The Iran hostage crisis is going on for the entirety of this calendar year. <laughs> so oh, I, I don't know if people realize that that went on for like 400 and something days, but all of 1980, Iran hostage crisis in pop culture. John Lennon gets assassinated this year. So that's wild pop culture news. 
perhaps most important to us specifically, this is the birth year of Jake Gyllenhaal, the patron saint of this podcast. I don't know how we're referring to him. But he's born December 19th, 1980. And we'll come back to that uh, in our Jake Gyllenhaal discussion at the end of the podcast. Don't you worry. And then not in 1980, but in the beginning of 1981... An important event happens that weirdly sort of ties together our last episode and this one. Yes. (laughs) But the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan happens. They delayed the Oscars broadcast today because of the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt, which I don't know if people already know this, but I'll repeat it if you do. Kind of happened because of Taxi Driver. <laughs> right. John Hinckley Jr. took a lot of inspiration from Taxi Driver. I think he said he'd like watched the film 15 times. He started to model his life after Travis and he was trying to impress Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. <laughs> Poor little Jodie Foster inspired too much admiration. So yeah, it all sort of comes full circle. <laughs> the 1980 you know Academy Awards. Also yeah. in classic Travis Bickle mode, he had initially tried to assassinate Carter. It was not political at all. I know. All. It's like he did that on purpose, tried to assassinate <laughs> a different politician only to fail so that he could later. Yeah, it's wild yeah. how that played out. But, you know, Ronald Reagan's OK, so we can all joke about it now, I guess. Well, he's dead now. He but. was OK <laughs> yes. at the time. Obviously, he's dead now. He would be a very old man. He was already super old when he became president. He was the oldest person elected at the time. But there you go. That's just a quick feel for what was going on in the United States in 1980. A very different feel than 1976, I think, even though it's only been four years. It's a pretty hard turn from Carter to Reagan, if we're being honest. It really is. (laughs) So let's run through what our nominees are. In alphabetical order, as always. Yep, they are... Coal Miner's Daughter, a biopic of country singer Loretta Lynn, stars Sissy Spacek as Loretta and Tommy Lee Jones, directed by Michael Apted, written by Tom Rickman. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards and won one, which was Best Actress for Sissy Spacek. All right. Up next, we have The Elephant Man, which is a biopic of Joseph Merrick, who is erroneously called John in the film, a man in the late 19th century who has some kind of disfiguring disorder. Stars Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, and Anne Bancroft. It was directed by David Lynch, written by Christopher DeVore. David Lynch and Eric Berggren. It was nominated for eight and it won zero. Womp Ouch. Womp. Third is Ordinary People, which is an adult drama about the dissolution of a family following a traumatic event. It stars Timothy Hutton, Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, and Judd Hirsch. Directed by Robert Redford in his directorial debut. Written by Alvin Sargent, it was nominated for six Academy Awards and won four. Now that's a good record. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Timothy Hutton, and Adapted Screenplay. Next we have Raging Bull, which is a biopic of boxer Jake LaMotta. It stars Robert De Niro, Kathy Moriarty, and Joe Pesci. It's directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader and Mardik Martin. Nominated for eight, won two. Best Actor for Robert De Niro, Best Editing, Thelma maker and then last we have tess a drama based on the novel tess of the d'urbervilles by thomas hardy stars natasha kinsky and peter firth directed by roman polanski written by gerard brock john brown john <laughs> what a name and roman polanski nominated for six academy awards and won three costume cinematography and art direction so again this is a little different from our 
previous year that we did on the podcast, 1976. None of our nominees are in the top five highest grossing movies of the year, which were in order. Uh, number one, The Empire Strikes Back. You may have heard of it. Number two, Airplane. Number three, Stir Crazy. Number four, Nine to Five. And number five, Any Which Way You Can. Coal Miner's Daughter was seventh at the box office that year, and Ordinary People did finish just outside the top 10 at 11. All right, but all the other ones are nowhere to be found on that list of box office grosses. And then let's check in again with anything particularly notable about film innovation, tech, whatever, anything important to talk about. I think we want to come back to our favorite person, Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, because... 1980 is also the year of the release of The Shining, which you probably noticed a fair amount of Steadicam use in. Right. They developed a a new mount for the Steadicam so it could be shot at a very low level. So all those scenes. Where you're tracking behind Danny on his little trike. Yeah, totally. And then also we had, not this year, but the following year because of this year, the creation of a new Academy Award. So The Elephant Man obviously was notable for its use of makeup. But at the time, there was not a Oscar for best makeup. And because people were so upset about the fact that the Elephant Man was not given an Academy Award for their makeup, they created that category and the very next year started giving that award. All right. Well, what won that year was Ordinary People. And so the consensus at the time seemed to be, I don't think people were very surprised. It had won a lot of the awards in the lead up to the Oscars broadcast. Yeah, I found a a New York Times article that was published right after the Academy Awards. And they were like, yeah, I'd won a bunch of stuff. So yeah, (laughs) surprise, surprise, ordinary people. The historical consensus now in retrospect, is a little bit miffed about it, if I'm being honest. It's now on these, you know, worst, most controversial winners lists because of Raging Bull. At the time, Raging Bull was fairly well received, but people weren't obsessed with it the way that they are now. Raging Bull is now number four on the AFI Top 100 movies. It is beloved by cinephiles. People talk in glowing terms. They say it's Martin Scorsese's masterpiece. So because of this, Ordinary People has come to be known as one of the big upsets or controversial winners of Academy Award Best Pictures. And I just... I. I take issue with this thing that people do. I understand that you can like Raging Bull more than ordinary people and think it should have won. But just because you like Raging Bull more than ordinary people does not mean that ordinary people sucks. (laughs) That logic doesn't follow. We'll end up talking about this at some point in the future. I have no idea when. But we have written in our outline, ordinary people is the Shakespeare in love of 1980. And that about sums it up for me. Shakespeare in Love is another film that famously won Best Picture and people are real mad about it. Over Saving Private Ryan, Yeah, because they think that Saving Private Ryan should have won that year. And it's like, I get it. Saving Private Ryan's great. But that doesn't mean Shakespeare in Love sucks. I like Shakespeare in Love. It's a good movie. I, I just take issue with the idea of like, because a better movie didn't win, quote unquote, a better movie didn't win, that the winner sucks. I think there's a difference between a sucky winner and a, you know, maybe we missed out on giving Raging Bull the respect that it deserves conversation. Yes. So let's begin our not at all confusing way of talking about these movies where we say, are we mad about it winning? Right. <laughs> so first of all, are we mad about ordinary people winning Best Picture? You? No. 
Mino as well. Um, Mino. Mino. <laughs> I also am not mad about it. Would you have been mad about Coal Miner's daughter winning? Yes. Yeah, me as well. Would you have been mad about the Elephant Man winning? Yes. Same. <laughs> Would you have been mad about Raging Bull winning? So this is where I get into a struggle. I'm going to say no, but I, for me personally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> makes any sense. We'll, we'll get to it when we talk about Raging Bull. It does. We'll get into it later. We'll get into it later. I would not have been mad about Raging Bull winning. And then last, would you have been mad about Tess winning? Yes. Yes, yeah, same. I would have been furious. But we'll get to that later as well. So I guess let's go through the ones that we both agree should not have won Best Picture. Okay. Again, alphabetically, let's start with Coal Miner's Daughter. Honestly, I came into Coal Miner's Daughter expecting to really dislike it because I expected to have like a super boring Bound for Glory experience again. And I didn't hate it. I think it is worth mentioning. I don't know that we as people love biopics. I mean, there are some that I like, but I when I see that a biopic's coming out, I'm not like, ooh, I'm going to love that. I love a biopic. <laughs> right. Because I think, again, we've had this discussion many times, but a life doesn't necessarily have a narrative to it. Yeah, a life is not a narrative. Oftentimes, biopics fall into just being a series of events where you're like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and you're yep. like, wow, yeah, all those things A happened. lot of stuff happened. Since <laughs> they were alive true. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, some of those events were interesting, because obviously you've picked a person with a not-so-ordinary life, but sure. still it was mostly just events all happening in sequence. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she has an interesting life, Loretta Lynn, that I did not know. She grew up in like a coal mining town, unsurprisingly, given the title, uh, with a bunch of siblings. She got married super young, though, fascinatingly, there's controversy about how young. <laughs> in the book and in the movie, she is 13 when she gets married, which is like, yoinks, that's really, really young. Really, really young. <laughs> Even for the time. Really young. Really, yeah. yeah. Even in the 40s, which is when it happens. That's pretty young. Then, like 10 years ago, all of a sudden, there was this minor controversy where people had uncovered some documents that Loretta Lynn had signed like later in her life that made it seem like she might actually be three years older than she said she was, <laughs> which means that she was potentially... 15, almost 16 when she got married instead of 13. And I mean, still, still young. That's real young. Yeah. But it is a lot more within the bounds of how old some people would have been when they were getting married in the 40s. Either way, she was very young. Teenager is very young to get married. Yes. But 13 is so young. It's really upsetting. It's so young. So the parts that I thought were interesting about her musical career were – they sort of make it out. I don't know how true this is to real life, but in the movie, she kind of owes her career to her husband. So that I thought was an interesting thing about it. I also thought it was interesting how relevant and current the like mental health conversation in it kind of was because it gets to a point in her career later on where she is so white mentally that she at one point is like I can't go on tonight I'm just not going to be able to perform there's no way and of course everyone is like you can't let down the audience they're all out there waiting for you to perform <laughs> and so mm -hmm. she does go out there and just completely melts down on stage and I'm like this would happen today like nothing about this has changed yeah I just thought that was interesting and how often she is 
after Patsy Cline, spoiler alert, dies. Alert for history. Yeah, she's good friends with Patsy Cline. Patsy Cline sort of helps her as she's coming up in the industry. But after she dies, she's almost always the only woman in a room in like every situation she finds herself in, which I also thought was just an interesting, probably still pretty (laughs) common thing for female musicians. So that whole thing was intriguing to me that she's kind of just being like buffeted along through this story by a bunch of men making decisions for her. Yeah, and I guess that that kind of comes up in the final scene, right, where she's having the argument with Tommy Lee Jones about the house and how he never listens to her and he just says it's either this or that. Yeah, you know, good performances. Yeah, Sissy Spacek and Beverly D'Angelo, who plays Patsy Cline, both do all of their own singing. It's very impressive. Neither of us like that Tommy Lee Jones was blonde. In oh, this. my God. He looks so weird with the hair. Everybody go to Google and look up a picture of him in this because it's odd. He also apparently replaced the original choice to play his character was Harrison Ford, which is like, I could see it. Yeah, I don't think that would have been a bad choice for this um, role. I think he could have done it. He could have done it. It's well within his range. So, yeah, I mean, the, the relationship is tumultuous. Her relationship with her husband, unsurprisingly, since they get married when she's 13 and or 15. But it is sort of the classic. She's a successful woman and he can't handle it. And you're like, yes. But what was crazy about it to me is that the vibe of the movie is like, there's no way this is going to work out. They must get divorced immediately. And then I looked it up and they were married until he died. 50 years. (laughs) So they made it work. I guess. Those two crazy kids. But yeah, Coal Miner's Daughter. It was it was a biopic of a singer. And there was music and you sort of went like, wow, I didn't know that about Loretta Lynn. (laughs) It was good. I don't have a problem with it. It wasn't best picture material, whatever that means. We'll get into that conversation later. But yeah, I had a fine time. Yeah, you could watch it. Yeah, (laughs) it's watchable. So the the next one that both of us were like, no, that's not a best picture. The Elephant Man. This was a sort of the opposite situation for me to Coal Miner's Daughter. This Mm. movie is directed by David Lynch, who anybody who knows David Lynch knows he's known for like his weirdness, his offbeatness, his quirkiness. (laughs) And so I was expecting at the very least for this to be strange and hopefully a fun way. And I mostly found it super down the middle and pretty boring. I don't know about you. I mean, I liked this movie quite a bit. I, I think I liked it more than Coal Miner's Daughter. So this is his second movie. He made Eraserhead, which I haven't seen. And I guess someone had seen it and they brought him on to do this much larger picture, which like the funny story was, so they made Eraserhead for like $20,000. And so now he's doing this big studio picture. And he's like, I want $30,000. And they were like, David, we're going to give you way more money. He was like, I'm going to ask for more money than I can imagine them giving me. $30,000. Apparently this movie was produced by Mel Brooks and Mel Brooks really went to bat for him. But he went uncredited because they didn't want people to think it was a comedy. Right. So like there were a number of things that David Lynch wanted that the studio pushed back on. He's the reason it's in black and white because that's something he wanted to do. But I think if it wasn't David Lynch, it would be a less interesting movie. You do see Lynchian touches throughout the film. Well, the opening footage is like super Lynchy and weird. And I was like, oh, maybe... It's going to be crazy and cool. <laughs> so there, yeah, there's touches throughout, but it's, it's, you know, I think he was hemmed in by the studio. Yeah. We're like, no, it this happens. is a normal movie. I mean, I, it just, it was a pretty traditional Oscars movie. 
you know, it's a biopic. You have room for a strong performance for your nominee. But really, I, I just was like, I, it's not that I don't like the message being, you know, just because people look different doesn't mean that they're not people. But like, I don't know. It, well, I wanted more. <laughs> so I think one of the central questions that I don't know that they resolve is this question of can you escape having this man put on display? Even the, mm-hmm. the characters with good intentions are continuing to put him on display. And is it possible for someone like that to be truly accepted? Because even at the end when he goes to the theater, they're like, stand up. You're, yeah. He's still on display. And then I think it's interesting at the end of the movie, he decides to try to sleep like a normal person. Like, maybe I'm finally being accepted. And he dies. <laughs> Which is how he died in real life. Yeah. But like, oh, okay. So I think that sort of thematic through line through this movie is interesting. And I I don't know that they end up really anywhere with it. And I don't know that's a question you can answer. And I did like the part with Anthony Hopkins really trying to grapple with whether or not he's a good man. So I appreciated that. I do agree. I also noticed that theme and was asking myself that as it was happening. But I, I guess it's just that I don't feel like the movie ended up with like a perspective on that and you're right that there might not be an answer to it so that's its own issue but right I ended it with what is this movie really trying to say I will say in favor of this movie and I'm bringing this up because it'll come up again and maybe this is just my experience with David Lynch it ended up reminding me a lot if I can tell this anecdote quickly about the time we watched Blue Velvet with Amanda I don't know if you remember this I remember that I showed you guys Blue Velvet but I don't know if I know what anecdote you're talking right. about right so and this is early in the movie in Blue Velvet there's a scene where Kyle McLaughlin is hiding in Isabella Rossellini's closet and she kind of figures out that someone is there so she grabs like a carving knife and makes him come out of the closet and take off all his clothes. And so I'm sitting in between you and our, our mutual friend, Amanda. And Amanda starts flipping out and screaming, Maddie, you had seen the movie before we had it. Maddie, she she going to castrate him. Maddie, is she about to cut his dick? Maddie, Maddie, what's going to happen? And you were sitting next to me on the other side just laughing. Because that's how you show As I'm movies doing to now. people. As you're doing now. Because you won't answer any questions when you're showing movies to people. So I'm like, not. Amanda's flipping out. You're just cackling. I'm there like, is she going to cut his dick off? I don't like, know. It we'll seems like a out. possible option. So like, I think David Lynch films create certain amounts of anxiety. And I will say like, I had a lot of anxiety about the gym character, the orderly. Yeah, that guy fucking sucks. Because at first I'm like, is he getting people to like, fuck with him like yeah who knows? more physically because they they plant that seed early in the film too like his genitals work and i'm like what's happening they do say that and you're like okay <laughs> thanks for that knowledge no, how dark is this stuff with jim gonna get it made me real anxious anytime yeah. he was around so i was like that's effective this dude's freaking me out i don't like it <laughs> i'll say Anne Bancroft is in this, and she looks exactly like the aged up version of herself in The Graduate 12 years earlier. <laughs> You're saying the, the Graduate should have also won a makeup award. I'm saying the makeup in The Graduate predicted the future. So, <laughs> well done. I, I read an, a Roger Ebert review of this that encapsulated my own thoughts. So, I'm going to read a quote from Roger Ebert. I kept asking myself what the film was really trying to say about the human condition as reflected by John Merrick. And I kept drawing blanks and I was like, okay, again, it's not a bad movie. Yeah. You could watch it. It's watchable. (laughs) 
So if you want to see the Elephant Man, you want to know what all the fuss with the makeup is all about, you want to see baby Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I did cry at this film. It got me. So Okay, there you go. It might make you cry. That's the Elephant Man. Tess is our next. Tess. Both yeses, confusing. This is the one that I probably have the most thoughts about. Okay. <laughs> okay, so where to begin? I, I, let me start with the pros that I felt about yes, this Yes, let's start with pros. It's always nice to start with pros. It is beautiful. I think yep. the th- cinematography award, fine. Got yeah, a lot sure. of naturalistic lighting, real pretty to look at. I think there's some interesting camera work in this movie. Mm-hmm. The opening scene where you're kind of zooming around this pastoral scene and you're like, little town, it's a quiet village. And 100%. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I wish they were singing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so those are my pros. Yeah. I think that's perfectly fair. Uh, another pro, which we both have mentioned earlier, is now we know what Tess of the Durbervilles is about, if anyone True. ever asks us. So that's good. Like, yeah, I didn't know before. Now to the one overriding thought I had the entire time I was watching this movie. You may have heard of Roman Polanski. If you're a listener of this pod, you know that he is a beloved director You probably also know that he is no longer allowed to come to the United States because he fled after being prosecuted for raping a 14-year-old girl. And when he found out that he was potentially going to do jail time, he left the country and has been living in France most of the year since. And even like at one point got arrested in Switzerland or something in 2009 and almost got sent back to the United States, but then wasn't. So that's a thing about Roman Polanski. The other thing is this is the movie he made right after he fled in light of these charges. Now, that might not mean anything to you if you haven't seen Tess, but Tess is about (laughs) a girl who is raped by a powerful rich man when she is a teenager and it basically ruins her life. (laughs) She then goes around, you know, she gets pregnant She has the kid. The kid dies. It's real sad. She Mm -hmm. meets another guy and thinks she's in love and they get married. And then as soon as they get married, she tells him she was raped as a teenager. And he's like, you are impure. This changes everything about you. I don't think I can ever get past this. And then he leaves for like years. He goes to Brazil. (laughs) He goes to Brazil. She again is left destitute and working all these menial jobs trying to help support her mother and siblings. Eventually... The rich guy who raped her comes back in the picture and is like, hey, I'm rich and could probably help you out financially. It's really very stubborn of you to not let me help you out financially just because we had that little rape incident. And so she ends up marrying that guy and he financially supports her for a while. Then the husband. No, I don't think he. She she doesn't marry him. She's just just his mistress. Right. They live together and she accepts his money. And Mm -hmm. then the. Husband comes back from Brazil and says, I was so wrong to leave. I've totally changed my mind about how you are an impure woman. (laughs) And now I think that we should be together. And so Tess, in the best part of the movie, murders the rapist and goes on the run with the husband. And then the two very quickly get caught. And the only thing, (laughs) the only thing I was thinking the whole time I watched this movie was, Who does Roman Polanski identify with and how the fuck is this the first movie he made after he raped a 14-year-old and fled the country? 
Well, what's really interesting, it was dedicated to Sharon. Apparently, Sharon Tate really wanted to make yeah. this movie. People, another, the third thing you probably know about Roman Polanski <laughs> is that he was married to Sharon Tate when she got murdered by the Manson family. When she was like eight months pregnant, right? Yeah, like, she was pregnant was with his kid. It was horrible. She and some of their mutual friends were all murdered, but Roman was not there. And so Sharon Tate apparently loved Tess of the D'Urbervilles and is the one who told Roman that he should adapt it. And so, yes, the movie is dedicated to Sharon. So it's weird and complex. <laughs> it is incredibly complex. On the one hand, I think that the novel Tess of the D'Urbervilles is supposed to be about how women are fucked by society and yeah there's also supposed to be like themes of anti-industrialization and women representing nature and and the pastoral lifestyle before all this masculine industrialization comes in which i think is why she dies at stonehenge at the end that's not clear in the film Um, no the the themes of naturalism and yeah. yeah you're right i'm sure that's all a lot clearer in the novel but I just like, I can't watch, I, the whole time I'm seeing the rich rapist guy, here here was my journey. <laughs> the time, <laughs> really where my head was the most fucked because of the Rowan Polanski of it all, is the time after her husband has left her. Mm-hmm. And then the rapist comes back in the picture and she's working this terrible job and her family's all fucked and her dad has died and they can't support themselves and they have nowhere to live. And the guy comes back and he's like, look. I have money. You need money. Like, don't be stubborn. Let me help you. And meanwhile, she's been writing all these letters to her husband that go unanswered because he just fucked off to nowhere and is having his own, like, mental freak out about whether it's okay to be married to a woman who was raped as a teenager. And I really was like, is the moral of this story the rapist isn't so bad. <laughs> it is what Roman Polanski's saying. Like, women always think they want the guy who says he's in love with them, but really he's a hypocrite who runs away. And the guy who is straight about his what he wants and his feelings is actually the better guy to go for because he's telling it like it is. Like, that's the entire... I was like, that's what this movie's about, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. And I think... All right. We, neither of us have read the book, so we right. don't quite know what Alec is like in the book. I will say this. The actor is older than the character is supposed to be. When I was reading about the book, I was like, this doesn't seem like the behavior of a man who is the age this actor appears to be. The actor's 35. Mm -hmm. And Alec in the book is 24, which obviously doesn't make it okay. It's just different. And then I think he comes around in the book because he's converted to Christianity. He becomes like a a priest. So there's like a different narrative where I I think in the movie, he is portrayed as like, I'm just this good guy who's really into you and I'm here to help you. And you know, you get into this fight with this girl who got treacle down her back and I rescued you from this fight. And you know, after I raped you, yeah, I'm going to give you this bonnet. You're going to kind of like it. And then we're going to be in a boat together. And it's going to be like, is this okay? And then you're going to leave. And I'm going to be like, don't go. I'll take care of you. And it's like, I would have taken well, care of the baby. And she doesn't tell him about the kid. So then he gets to yeah. be like, oh, you should have told me. I would have been there. We would have gotten married. I would have raised the kid. So I don't quite know how different it is from the book, but it does seem like the characterization is different. And I would be curious to talk to someone who had read this book and be like, is it the same? I don't know. I mean, it, it does. The movie obviously comes around to a place where she murders her rapist and then she gets back with her her love, even though I'm not on board for that. I do not support her going back to that husband because like, screw that guy. (laughs) 
Well, if we can talk about the the movie a little bit separate from this, I think the movie has a number of flaws, which probably come out of the fact that you're adapting a novel into a, even though it's a pretty long movie, a mm-hmm. movie where like, I don't think any of the character relationships are set up well. I don't know that she's really in love with that guy. It seems pretty clear that it was lust on his end because he doesn't know her. Right. And, you know, the minute he finds out she's sullied, it's it's over. Even though, even though right before she tells him that she had been raped as a teenager, he tells her that he is not a virgin. He's like, we just got married. I have yes. to confess something to you. I had this, you know, like wild summer fling with some woman and I feel really bad about it. But like, I just want to be honest with you. And so then that's why she's like, okay, maybe I can tell you the truth about my experience as well. And as soon as she tells him, he's like, oh no, that's not okay for a woman. <laughs> right. But then after so she leaves after that scene and then he runs into her friend is who I'm like, are, are they really close friends? Do they just kind of work together? I don't know yeah, what they're unclear. Like, not established. And he's like, do you want to be my mistress? And she's like, hell yeah. And you're like, okay. Yeah, that scene is interesting because he's like, maybe you should run away with me to Brazil, random woman that I know has a crush on me, but I don't really care about. And then he's like, you love me, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, do you love me as much as Tess? And she's like, no, like no one could possibly love you as much as Tess. Her love for you is amazing and blah, blah, blah. And then She would die for you. Yeah. And then he's sort of like, oh, huh. (laughs) And then he just leaves to Brazil. (laughs) But then like, do you feel through their courtship, like their love is deep and real? They hardly Uh, know each other. I always feel like that in in – I think I just – I generally had a difficult time tracking time and space throughout this movie. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, we know it takes place over a period of years because she gets pregnant and has a baby and he goes to Brazil for some amount of time. But yeah. also, if those two things didn't happen and you were like, this movie takes place over two weeks, I would have been like, yeah, sure. That makes sense. And then I also couldn't figure out, like, where she was in the country, how far away she was from anything at any time. There's a very strange scene that sort of speaks to this where – so she ends up meeting her rapist because they find out that they're Durbervilles and she goes to live with the cousin because they're wealthy, even though they're not really her cousins. And so, like, she's going to move to his house. She takes a carriage down her lane, but then he meets her, like, 500 feet down the lane. So I'm like, why did she take the first carriage? Did they not expect it? I is, don't know. Is that this a surprise? Really why didn't you just pick her up at her house? <laughs> like, oh, what is space in this movie? <laughs> the family had almost had walked almost as far as he, his carriage was. I don't yeah, like. I don't know. Also, the movie's three hours long, which I always take yeah. as a personal attack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't necessarily feel that way. I think a movie can't handle three hours if it's got enough content. If it's got enough content. I feel like it is the rare picture that needs to be three hours long. You really need to prove to me why your movie deserves to be three hours long. Right. So I I just, I think, you know, again, I don't know if this is, you know, symptomatic of them condensing a book into a film. But, yeah, things happen too fast (laughs) or... There's not enough time establishing character relationships. And then you're just like, okay, I, I, I guess. Yeah. That's her best friend or not. I don't know. What I also found to be interesting is obviously all I could think about the whole time was Roman Polanski is this guy. Who, how does he feel about that? And then I went online to be like, everyone must be talking about this, right? Like, this is the conversation about this movie. And I could find hardly anyone having that conversation. There were a lot of people having the conversation of like, Am I allowed to love Tess, even though Roman Polanski sucks like that? Can we separate the art from the artist conversation? And like, 
I've always loved Tess because I, you know, I, it speaks to me as a feminist or whatever, like all that. And can I just pretend Roman Polanski wasn't a part of it? And it's like, I'm ready to have that conversation about Chinatown, right? Like any mm-hmm. other great Roman Polanski movie where you can be like, this movie's great, but the director sucks. So can we just like pretend that Roman Polanski doesn't exist? But this movie is about what he did. Like, that's what I can't wrap my mind around. That's the only conversation to me. He he immediately made a movie about himself. <laughs> and that has to be saying something about how he feels about his life and his choices. And what yeah. is it saying? I'm fascinated. Yeah, no, it's interesting that there isn't more of that out in the world. But yeah, so those are our should not have ones. I don't know mm-hmm. if we have any other things to say. We should probably get into our should uh, have ones or wouldn't be mad. Ones wouldn't or... be mad if it ones. Let's do probably Raging Bull first and we'll get yeah. to the actual winner at the end. So this is the one that you have very complicated feelings about and I'm sure have a lot to say. Should I start with mine then? Because I feel like my feelings are not that complicated. Well, so let me let me start off by saying why I gave a yes and a no at the beginning of our question. So mm-hmm. again, right, if we're trying to evaluate these films as objectively as possible, if that's even possible, yeah, how can I argue with the critical consensus around this film? It's it's pretty universal, mm-hmm. right? We mentioned it's number four on the AFI list of greatest American films of, of all, all time, time yeah. up to two thousand seven or whenever they did the list, mm-hmm. which. Updated AFI, get it together. Come on, AFI, it's been more than 10 years. (laughs) How can you argue with that? That's why I said, yes, I wouldn't be, no, I wouldn't be mad. No, I wouldn't. That's why I said, no, no, I wouldn't wouldn't be mad. mad. Because if I'm trying to be objective, I want to find what's there. But I had a lot of problems with this movie. And I think ultimately, right, to get to the beginning of our conversation, it did not resonate with me in any way. So that's why I said yes and no. But please, yes, lead lead with your, your views. There are certainly a lot of things about this movie that made me uncomfortable. <laughs> I can start with that. Again, this will, again will come up later. This is another one of the movies about a man who marries a teenager. <laughs> so that's happening all of the time, uh, which is true. I, I guess we already said this is a biopic based on Jake LaMotta, I think also based on his autobiography. They're all autobiographies. And so it's about this boxer and he marries this 15-year-old girl from the neighborhood and then becomes very successful. She comes along for the ride. He ends up getting more and more abusive as their relationship goes on. He gets possessive and paranoid about her and like thinks that she's sleeping with his brother and like all sorts of craziness. Their marriage, of course, ends up falling apart. He ends the movie post-boxing career in like maybe the most depressing place I've ever seen. (laughs) He decides to try to become a stand-up comedian. And it's so sad. It's like the saddest thing I've ever seen. And they bookend the movie with him practicing his stand-up routine. And it's like... It's not the monologue from On the Waterfront? Yeah, but it's like for... It's him practicing to go on stage before and at the end in the beginning of the movie. He does do the, the I could have been a contender speech from On the Waterfront. But... I think it's beautifully made. I think it's wonderfully acted. I think it, it's the movie that discovered Joe Pesci. I love Joe Pesci. Robert De Niro's great. I think he totally deserves the Oscar. I told you, and I'm sure that you will disagree with me, but <laughs> I told you, anytime a great boxing movie, a quote unquote great boxing movie exists, 
the conversation about it is always like, oh my God, the fight scenes. You wouldn't believe the fight scenes. They're so incredible. And most of the time I'm like, how great can they be, right? They're just fight scenes. They mostly look the same. I did find the fight scenes in this to be awesome. I think that he does a lot of very different cinematic things with each of the fight scenes. They're, they don't just blend into each other. There's a lot of cool stuff happening with them. Unsurprisingly, it's very difficult to watch the creepy stuff with him and the 15-year-old and him getting crazy and abusive as the relationship goes on is rough. But that's sort of... I feel like that's a Martin Scorsese theme (laughs) in all of the things. But yeah, beautiful. I enjoyed it. I wouldn't be mad if it was Best Picture, but I I guess I won't spoil my opinions about Ordinary People because we'll get to them soon enough. So... Those were my general thoughts on on Raging Bull. But tell me about how it didn't speak to you. So let me ask you this question. Did you look up how old Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro are supposed to be at the beginning of the movie? Well, see, I did. And then I know that they ended up changing the story around. So people are not actually the age that they are when things are happening in the movie. Right. But I think it is important. So in 1941, well, A, the Joe Pesci character is actually based on his friend in the autobiography. So Paul Schrader came in and was like, but it should be his brother because that's way more impactful. And then the brother actually ended up suing them because he didn't beat up that guy (laughs) at the the club, the friend. (laughs) So if if the movie is accurate to their real life, in 1941, the younger brother is supposed to be 16 and Robert De Niro is supposed to be 19. Yeah, but the movie is not accurate to real life. They were not 16 and 19 when she was 15. He's eight years older than her in real life. What actually happened is they get married way later. They they combined events. He already was further along in his boxing career. Oh, so they the didn't get married and they didn't meet in 1941? No. She okay. was like a little baby in 1941. Okay. So they did change around events because I did the same thing where I was like, oh, he was only 19. Like, that's not that weird. But then I was like, oh, the math isn't working out with how much older than her he is. But they're still also not 35. No, no. Yeah, that part is super different than reality. So – and I don't even know that they look 35. I think they look older than that. Well, so that's people like people in the <laughs> 80s and 70s always look so much older than they are. But I think that changes things – Two of your perception of the character, right? Like it's different if he's 23 and acting this way mm-hmm. versus if he's 40 and acting this way. 100%. I don't know how to reconcile that in my viewing of the movie in terms of what their relationship is like. And I also understand a little bit better her being like, oh, this 23-year-old guy, he has a car over oh, going yeah. out as opposed to, again, he's 40. But he's abusive from the get. He's abusive to his first wife. He's abusive yep. to everyone around him. He continues to be abusive. I, I mentioned the Jim character in the elephant man earlier on, because I didn't know what he was going to do. Whereas like, yeah, he's going to hit her because he talks about hitting her all the time and he hits her all the time. So there's no suspense there. He's an abusive guy. He's going to continue to be abusive. I really do feel like this movie could be a short film. That's the scene from when they bring up the pretty boy and they get into that fight through that fight where like, yeah, I get it. He's his fighting is, you know, him getting out his anger. And it's it's that element of his personality being exercised in the ring. And they're cutting in between him fighting and him having that conversation with her while she's trying to sleep where he's like, why did you say that? Why did you say that? It's like the same scene over and over again. <laughs> and I was like, I can't wrap my head around why people feel this is such a great character study when he doesn't really change through the movie and it's just the same thing over and over again. Like, I don't know that the the repetitiveness is adding up to anything either. And 
Vicky, I feel, is underdeveloped. I did really like Joe Pesci in this movie. Is great, even though, again, he is great. He's too old. <laughs> They're both too old. He's, he's too old to play Yentl. She was too old. <laughs> old to play Yentl. Yeah. He's, he's great. Again, I think it's similar to our conversation with Taxi Driver. Like, yes, it's well shot. And yes, it's well edited. And yes, the performances are good. But all of the pieces are not adding up to a thing that works for you. Right. I just don't know from a character and story perspective that I'm seeing and experiencing what everyone else is seeing and experiencing. I do feel like there's a mini arc. I feel like he definitely gets worse as time goes on. And I, in my mind, what I was thinking a lot about is like him being a boxer and how paranoia is a symptom of traumatic brain injury. And like, I also did think like maybe this character just has CTE. Yeah. <laughs> like that seemed quite good. Cool but I don't me. think that's what this movie is about. Well, I don't know that that's, I don't think that's what the movie is saying, but I do think that's probably what was happening in Jake LaMotta's life. And like, obviously this is being filtered through a lot of lenses of his own portrayal of what his life was like. And then other people in saying this is what we think you're saying by what your life was like. But I was thinking about that the whole time when he starts to be like, I don't know, you're fucking my brother. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, where is this coming from? You absolute lunatic. Well, that was interesting, too, because from what I read, they did sanitize him a little bit. He was guilty of attempted murder, I think rape. Like, they don't show the full extent of how truly terrible he was, which is an interesting choice. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You know, we, in the discussion of the elephant man, you're like, I don't really know what, like, the thematic thrust of this movie is. What is the thematic thrust to you of Raging Bull? What is it trying to say? I mean... I guess it's just about like people destroying their own lives through their own demons. Like his downfall is entirely his own fault. <laughs> I just think it's stylish and enjoyable and well acted. I'm not necessarily here telling you that it's saying the most about the human condition. And I, I, I don't think that Elephant Man is not saying anything about the human condition. I just, from what it was saying, I didn't think it was that interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I think I'm in a similar place with this movie. I actually, like when I was going through this, when I was also trying to decide my yes or my no, I was like, I feel very similarly about this movie as I do to Tess. Both beautifully shot. Yeah. Both about men being terrible. Men are A lot of men being terrible through all of this. But, you know, in this case, we're focused. I like, I think this would be a better movie if it was about Joe Pesci's character. I would love that. I love Joe Pesci. I also thought it was so fascinating to see Joe Pesci be, for most of the movie, with one exception, be like the normal one, like the not yeah. crazy one. And Robert De Niro's there being like so crazy. And Joe Pesci is like, why are you being crazy right now? <laughs> I'm Joe Pesci. I'm chill. And I was like, this is a new mode for you, Joe Pesci. Except for that scene when he does get into the bar fight out of nowhere. And you're like, whoa, Joe Pesci. Whoa. <laughs> I love that the brother sued them because of that. Yeah. He was like, I did not. I did not assault. do that. And if you're trying okay, to say yeah. that I did do that, I did not do that. What did I, I'm looking at my notes that I wrote about this. Oh, classic Oscars thing. Robert De Niro took four months off in the middle of production to go to Italy and gain 60 pounds <sighs> to shoot the end of this movie. That's another problem I have. And I say this to you, the world, as a person who loves Christian Bale. I don't care that when actors can wait for roles. I don't think it's impressive. I don't think we should reward it. It's so bad for you. I hate that, but, yeah. you know. 
That's a separate issue. It's classic Oscar movie thing. Oh, I also wrote... I forgot that I wrote this, but I agree with myself. I wrote, obsessed with the energy of the scene after LaMotta throws the fight and he's crying about it and his trainer tells him he can quit. It's a free country. But then the trainer is also crying. (laughs) I loved that scene. (laughs) What a weird energy they all have. I will say this, right? I am obviously we're going to watch a ton more Scorsese movies over the course of the So your of this opinion of him will be rounded out one way or the other. Yeah. I'm very interested to continue to engage with his works. I'm interested to see his more like religious films, which I haven't seen any yeah, of. Those I have not seen. So we'll see. We'll see if I can go on a, a journey with Scorsese. And I also do wonder, I had this thought, like, you know, we said Raging Bull was well received at the time. I wonder if it's also benefited from like the the continuation of his over because he's dealing with the same themes over and over again and mm-hmm. i wonder if as that continues on it ends up enriching his back catalog because you can recognize like oh yeah this is yeah, happening maybe. here this is happening here but yeah i mean i i can't argue it's the critical consensus so but i personally have been like oh raging bull one all right but you probably yeah. would have been like i guess makes I sense guess. sure Let's talk about Ordinary People. Let's talk which about Which is a Ordinary movie people. I actually loved. I loved it too. This is another one that was colored a little bit by the real life activities outside of the film. But Timothy Hutton, also accused of raping a teenager very shortly after this film. Like two years but after. later. But after. So if we all want to live in a world where it is 1980 and none of that has happened yet. This Timothy Hutton in yeah. this film to our knowledge, hasn't raped anyone. As far as we know. And he's great. He's He's so so good good in it. Everyone is so good in it. Donald Sutherland crushing it. Good crier. Didn't know that. Mary Tyler Moore playing this emotionless, cold bitch woman. Amazing. Never would have seen that come from Mary Tyler Moore. And then Judd Hirsch. Great therapist. So good. He's so good. This Before we watched it, I was like, I'm sure it's going to be good. I've heard everyone talk about ordinary people. It's going to be good. But my only conception was it, of it was it seems like the prototypical adult drama. Intimate yes. character study. Like whatever that means to you. I was like, this is probably going to be pretty dry. <laughs> but it, I really liked it. It starts in a place where you know that something weird's going on in their family dynamic, but you don't know what it is. We see the characters and we don't know it's weird yet. It yeah. starts off with Timothy Hutton's at school. He's in choir. And then we cut to... His parents are going to a play. And then they're, they're all together at breakfast. And yeah. Timothy Hutton doesn't want to eat the French toast that his mother has prepared. And his dad is like, come on, you should eat it. And she's like, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. And she grabs the French toast and she throws it in the sink. <laughs> She puts it down the garbage disposal, which, quick note, don't do that. Don't do that. It's but bad you're, for your you're very quickly like, something's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bad vibe for a family. And then the way they they tease out the story, I really like, eventually becomes clear that his brother died. And you're like, oh, the family's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And then he attempted suicide. Yes. So he had been – he's coming out of having been in the hospital. He's been held back a grade. Mm-hmm. The, the characters are very complex and yep. interesting and I think fully rounded. And I think you do walk away though from the film being like, I don't – like I don't I don't know why that person did that but not in a bad way. Like I don't sure. know that I fully understand what Mary Tyler Moore is experiencing because she doesn't explain it to us. Clearly she's dealing with her grief. Yeah. And she's not dealing with it well and – Man, you just think about it. I've been thinking about it. What's wild about it 
is, yes, she's clearly not dealing with her grief well. But it becomes clear that's not the whole issue, right? Like, she always seemingly preferred the brother and had Mm -hmm. issues connecting with Timothy Hutton. And then it even, I love the scene when Donald Sutherland goes to see Judd Hirsch. And he thinks he's going there to talk about Timothy Hutton. But he's like, I've just realized I'm here to talk about myself. (laughs) I need therapy. And it's like, yes, you do, buddy. But the the therapist starts asking him, because he's talking about how Mary Tyler Moore's character has never really been that affectionate towards Timothy Hutton. And then he asks him if she's affectionate to him, to Donald Sutherland. And he's sort of like, "Uh, no no issues there. And you're like, (laughs) really? Just the way things get teased out, it's so layered, it's so nuanced. The scene when Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland go to that party with all their yuppie friends, and it's the worst experience of all time. (laughs) That party is my nightmare. It is hell. It is all of these. The thing this movie reminded me of in a lot of ways was like a a less drunk, less absurd Albie play. Yes, 100%. You know. Great for me, but yeah, that party where they're it's 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 all surface, and that's the thing with Mary Tyler Moore. She's all about control. She's yep. all about surface. He starts trying to have a real conversation with one of his friends, a real connection, and she's like, "No, no." Yeah, he starts no. talking to one of their friends about how their son has been seeing a therapist, and Mary Tyler Moore hears him say that he's been seeing a doctor, and she runs over to be like, "We don't say that to strangers." <laughs> And then in the car on their way home, she's pissed at him for bringing it up and he doesn't understand why. And it's like, there can be no real emotional connection. We don't do that. I mean, that's the opposite of control. Feelings are the opposite that's of vulnerability. Control. She's not here for yeah. vulnerability. No. Yeah. Um, it's it's really performance driven. I think another thing right from these Oscars is some people are critical of Robert Redford getting the best director win. But if a director is in part responsible for the performances. Like, it, yeah, it's not a very stylized movie, but it's about the characters and the performances. So you want that to be the focus. And it's really successful. And all of their performances come across perfectly. Yeah. So, and it's, I thought he did a great job. It's his directorial debut. I mean, I do yeah. agree that if I were picking the directorial flair of Martin Scorsese, might have gotten me, but I'm not, I'm not mad about it. He did a good job. <laughs> Like, why are we mad about Robert Redford? I'll also say I loved the screenplay. I loved all of the dialogue, the subtleties, the nuance. I had in the middle of the movie, I looked up who wrote it. And then I was like, I love this guy. I have to know who this Alvin Sargent is. And then I found that he had written this movie I'm sure none of you have heard of called White Palace that stars James Spader and Susan Sarandon that I adore. (laughs) I will recommend that to anyone if you can find it. I don't even know where it's streaming, but... That is a great um, movie about the two of them having a romance between he, she's like an older woman and he's a younger oh, man. Okay. But I just thought it was great. It was so well written. I, it was so this well was, I also cried watching this oh, movie. Oh, I cried I'll, watching I'll, this one too. I will note whenever that happens because it, it is meaningful. I, I, I think the thing that got me most, oddly enough, I don't know what it was for you, was the sort of final flashback. I really liked the flashbacks in this movie as well where Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore are dancing at like a a discotheque and it's like, you know, the beginning of their relationship and everything was probably so bright and hopeful. And Mm -hmm. then it's just, it's over. And I'm like, well, the the encapsulation, what got me is him asking if she still loves him and her saying, she says to him, I feel the same way about you. I've always felt. (laughs) 
and you're like, no. <laughs> that is the that wrong is answer. The incorrect answer. Because that answer is, I don't think I've ever really loved you. <laughs> like, right. That's all that answer means. My God. Yeah. Heartbreaking. But I'm I'm glad that hopefully this means that Donald Sutherland and Timothy Hutton will have some sort of emotional connection with each other because they desperately need it. I think at that end scene, they're able to express how how they feel and how they felt and talk about maybe what's been holding them back. I think, you know, it's a really lovely scene where he's like, I thought you loved Buck more also because you were always paying more attention to him. And he was like, Buck's the one who needed my attention. I wasn't worried about you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the movie's really grounded, but it's also like you can really put yourself in all these people's shoes and say, like, what would you do? How would you deal with this? Grief is really difficult to think about because everyone processes grief differently and that's fine. But it's like if you're Donald Sutherland and I think Mary Tyler Moore does need him, Mm -hmm. but she needs him at the expense of their son. And it's like, oh, boy. Yeah. That's a difficult choice You got to choose your kid. What's fascinating to me about it is I think – I, I just love that they did it this way, too, where it's the mother who can't connect with the kid. Mm-hmm. And I just think it is not – in a logical world, it's not unreasonable to be like, this is what I need and why are my needs less important than his needs? Like, give me what I need, right? Yes. But I just – in a world where parents are expected to behave a certain way, that's not an acceptable answer. Logical as it might be, I think right. parents are expected to always put the needs of their children first and it's – fascinating to see a mother character who's like why should that be (laughs) like like, he's just another person just like me like why can't I get what I need and and also just the idea of like she just doesn't click with him like he's her kid and I'm sure that she well they're the same person theoretically but like yeah they're the same person exactly yeah and I think for a lot of people that's that's hard is she see maybe she you know she saw in Buck something that she wanted or yeah I think they mentioned the film, like he was the firstborn. Maybe there's that. Yeah, it's like, it's it's all very interesting. Oh, it's so fascinating. And I think, yeah, and I, I mean, Timothy Hutton's great. You get to see him do a lot of different things. I think the romance he has with the, the girl he's interested in is very sweet. I really like the scene, too, where he's trying to get up the courage to call her and ask her out. And he's, like, yeah. doing a deep voice. And then he's like, Conrad's stupid name. And you're like, it kind of is. <laughs> What does he say his name should have been? Like, Bill? Yeah, their romance I thought was very interesting because obviously what he's dealing with is impossible. Like, he's struggling because it's an impossible situation. Like, he's not only dealing with the death of his brother, but he feels responsible for the death of his brother. Mm -hmm. It's, like, too much for an adult to deal with, and it's impossible for a teenager. And so for her... He's like trying to have a romance with this girl and she asks him what's going on with him because everybody knows that he tried to kill himself basically. Right. But also everyone else is sort of on pins and needles and won't talk to him about it and she's connecting with him. Right. But also it's like awesome that she's trying to connect with him but they have this great scene where she's trying to connect with him and then it like becomes a disaster because all of these other teenagers come in and they're all rowdy and they're like making a scene and they pull her into it in the middle of his heartfelt confession and she's like laughing because she doesn't know how to deal with the fact that all of this shit is happening while she was just like hearing this really dark story from him and Mm -hmm. so it's like well I guess that date was a 
disaster. And so it's awkward on their ride home. And, you know, it's hard to figure out how to move on from that. But I love that they get the beat of him going to her house to be like, maybe we can salvage something. I don't even know. And she apologizes for how she acted. And it's like, it's unreasonable to expect her to know how to deal with this. So I like that they like give them both the grace of like, they're trying. They don't know what yeah. they're doing, but they're trying. <laughs> and I like that about them, you know? What more can yeah. you expect? It was a beautiful movie. I loved all the it's therapy good. scenes. Judd Hirsch yes. as the therapist was so great. I also told you earlier, I didn't realize how much of Goodwill Hunting was like basically an homage to this movie. Right. There's even a scene where he tells him it's not his fault. And I was like, <laughs> it's not his fault. It's not his fault. I know. So yeah, I love that. Always more therapy in movies, please. Because in a movie where you're trying to get to know people, what better way is there to get to know people? It's a really good, it's a good device. Great device. So clearly we both really like this movie. Yeah. And I think everyone should go watch it. If you haven't seen Ordinary People, watch it. If you like us when we looked at this list went, oh, just adult drama, all caps, adult drama. Okay. Like, it's really good. It's really good. I guess let's talk about if there's anything else that was around that maybe should have been nominated. So sort of in this section, we're looking at box office, we're looking at cultural impact, we're looking at best of lists, we're looking at, you know, just what might have been really good that came out this year. And and this isn't necessarily a complete list. It is based on what we've actually seen. So, yeah. you know, there's something else that was nominated this year in other categories that we should have watched. Hey, let us know. So there's a couple of... of Pretty big cultural impact movies that came out this year. One of them we've already mentioned because it was the, well, two of them we've already mentioned, but one was the number one movie on the uh, box office returns list, and that was The Empire Strikes Back. You may have heard of it. I think you cannot debate the cultural impact. I agree with you there. Of this film. (laughs) I think that's true. I don't know. Are you going to go to bat for it like should have been nominated? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I don't feel strongly about several of the nominees. Right. (laughs) This year. So it's not like 76 where I'm like four of them obviously should have been nominated and the other one make it whatever. Who cares? (laughs) So we're going to talk about three movies here. And I guess the question is, could we kick out three of the nominees? (laughs) I'd be fine with it. I think the difficulty of Empire Strikes Back is it is the center part of a trilogy, so Mm -hmm. it's not sort of a complete story. I agree with that. So that's sort of, you know, a problem. But, like, come on. It's got Yoda. It's got Han and Carbonite. With the Oscars, I feel like you always end up in a situation where it's like when Return of the King got all those nominations for stuff that was really in recognition of the trilogy. The whole trilogy, yeah. It's hard to do that with the middle movie and something. But yeah, it doesn't get much more culturally relevant and is obviously the highest grossing film of the year. Other movies that came out this year, one of them, also you may have heard of, The Shining. Jack Nicholson. And it's what a wild movie The Shining is. So beautiful. So yeah. like one of the most iconic horror films of all time. Again, a very iconic imagery. You can't argue that it has had a cultural impact. You can't argue it. We see those twins all the time. We see the blood elevator all the time. You see those carpets all the time. Carpet. Here's Johnny. The scene of him cutting through the door with the axes generally. Yeah. Even without the here's Johnny. Yeah. All, all working work, no play, play. Makes, makes Jack a dull boy. It's just chock full of iconic moments. Yeah. 
and like another movie about an abusive white guy husband. So it fits right in thematically. <laughs> it's an interesting movie too because maybe it's because of Kubrick specifically that like the number of theories about what The Shining is about endless. Yeah, <laughs> insane. Yep. People are thinking about this movie all the time deeply. It's true. It is true. Why The Shining works for me, I'll say, is Jack Nicholson giving such a good performance. Shelley Duvall giving, I think, a pretty awful performance, but in a great way. <laughs> like, I, I mean, just... I think I think it really works for the film. I know you feel yeah. that it's not great, but like well, I don't her think screaming. I don't think it doesn't work. To be fair. Her screaming when Jack is axing down that door yeah. is like, whoa. It is like, whoa. She's, she's doing stuff. I agree completely. She's doing stuff. <laughs> but for me, I think it's the dichotomy between like the chilling amazingness of his performance and then the bigness of her performance. I find delightful. <laughs> it really works yeah. for me. Yeah, I, I find this movie to be a more clear critique of white men writ large. Like, I think it is very easy to see the narrative around how white people have impacted America, the Native American genocide, right? They kill the only black guy in the movie. Mm -hmm. The picture that he's in at the end is the 4th of July. It's a 4th of July party. I think there's like really interesting symbolic discussion happening in this film, which like, again, I can't help but think of it because we're thinking about it in comparison to Raging Bull, where I'm like, no, this guy is clearly a villain. Portray him as a villain. Yeah, love The Shining. There's a lot of conversation to be had about it. I would definitely put The Shining in the knobs. I think, you know, you can also make the argument, right, for Kubrick as a director now. But this movie's interesting because unlike Empire Strikes Back and the other movie we're going to discuss, it was not critically well-received at the time. Bad box office. Mm Mm-hmm. So this has really gone through a reevaluation. It came um, culturally relevant later. Yes. And from what I can gather, I feel like some of the issues with the reception is because it's a bad adaptation of the Stephen King book, which was super successful. And King came out and was like, this is a bad adaptation of my book. Yeah. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's not faithful. I think there's a difference between something being an unfaithful adaptation and being a bad adaptation. Well, yes. I mean bad in the sense that like if you went into the movie expecting to see the book, it's not what you're going to get. And one of the complaints about it is in the book, Jack Torrance starts off as a really good family man. And then he has, again, like a very clear arc to become this violent, horrible person. And in this movie, he always seems kind of off from the beginning. And they're like, because he's Jack Nicholson. Because he's sense. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. <laughs> I want a quote that I read, and I also don't remember where I saw this. Was like in the book, it's the story of a of a good man losing his mind, but in the movie, it's the story of a crazy man pretending to be sane. <laughs> and you're mm. like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, kind of. All right. But I like The Shining a lot. What else? We have another one. The other one one that neither of us had seen before we prepped for this, but we did watch in preparation for this podcast, and boy, am I glad that we did, is Nine to Five. What a way to make a living. It's such a way to make a living. Uh, Nine to Five. So uh, if people don't know, the Dolly Parton song Nine to Five, written for this. The stars are Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. All legends. Such a good cast. And it's just like... 
such a good movie about what it's like to be a woman in the workplace and also like so little has changed <laughs> since they made Yeah, it has movie. a bit of a network uh, experience with this one where it's like, oh, we didn't solve any of these problems. Cool. Yeah. Nobody listened or made any changes. There, I mean, there's a part where Lily Tomlin literally doesn't get offered a promotion and the guy tells her it's because they want a man in the job. <laughs> and you're like, that yeah. maybe wouldn't happen now. I just think it's so deftly done in the way that they show you all of these various aspects of like femininity and womanhood that are rejected by the workplace. So the, all mm-hmm. of the women are very different types. Lily Tomlin is this career woman, very ambitious, has been working here for 12 years and just wants to get ahead. And she's been like- Ultra working. competent. Yeah, ultra competent. Then you have Jane Fonda, who was- married has just gotten divorced has never worked is just entering the the workforce as this like i don't it's a little unclear what their jobs are they definitely like type stuff secretarial ad stuff yeah (laughs) Um, i mean uh, dolly parton's clearly his like personal secretary but the the pool of women sit at desks and and type things and add it's unimportant it's unimportant (laughs) but she's entering at the bottom of the you know the totem pole of work at this company yeah and you know is she's like, a traditional she's woman very by, traditional. Yeah. yeah and like i think even at the end of the movie she ends up just marrying someone else and maybe not working anymore she, she's not really like she's not a career woman like lily and then you have dolly parton who represents like female sexuality and she is the and personal, like ultra femininity ultra femininity but not in the like traditional homemaker kind of way so she's the personal secretary of the male boss and the entire office there's this rumor that she's been sleeping with the boss to get ahead meanwhile she has not but she has been being sexually harassed by the boss all the time so she's dealing with being sexually harassed constantly and just having to put up with it because that's the way of the world meanwhile everyone at the office hates her and she doesn't know why and it's because they all think she's sleeping with him boy does that resonate? So it's just you're exploring this idea through so many different types of women. And it's what's great is that that concept of like all of the women in the office are judging her is is real. And like there is this idea that yeah. women divide themselves and will judge each other for patriarchal standards that we didn't even invent. But in the movie, the three of them become friends and they realize that like we're stronger together and, you know, the women should be uniting. Uh, and they do. And then they end up taking the boss hostage and <laughs> taking over the company, basically. It, it's a farce. So, yeah, it's really enjoyable, but it does have things to say about the world. And apparently, based on an idea that Jane Fonda had. Hell this is like yeah, one of one of the very few original ideas that we've talked about. Like everything's based on a book or yes. a biopic. <laughs> well, and the biopics are all based on books, too. Pretty much all That's these true. movies are based on books. But like Jane Fonda was like, what about this? And you're like, great idea, Jane Fonda. Yeah. Well, Love and, it. And like 20 minutes into the movie when I realized what each of the women was, I had the thought like, this has to have been written by a woman. <laughs> and I had to look it up. And it was it was Jane Fonda's idea. And it was like co-written uh, a woman. And then the male director co-wrote the mm-hmm. screenplay. But I just – it was like – relevant and cool and delightful yeah. and so funny. And then there's a very harsh joke at the end where they're like, pay parody? And they're like, nah, we can't even, we can't get that. Yeah. It's like they almost, they get most of a win at the end. Yeah. Um, And also I think we need to call out the scene because it speaks to the scene in Tess where Jane Fonda's ex-husband who had left her for his secretary 
ends up mm-hmm. coming back into the picture and realizes he was wrong. It didn't work out with the secretary. He's deigning to and take he's her like, back. I'm willing to take you back. <laughs> and in unlike in Tess, where the guy comes back and is like, I'm willing to take you back. And she's like, thank you so much. In nine to five, Jane Fonda is like, excuse me, you're willing to take me back? Like, no, thank you. And it's all playing out at the same moment where they have the boss tied up in the house in this very suggestive way. <laughs> yes. I think they went to a BDSM store to get the stuff to keep him restrained. Yeah. And he starts knocking around in the house and the husband eventually comes up and he's like, it's actually also too, like, he's like, you're now this sexual gross person. I don't want you back. And she's like, fine. She totally leans into it because she doesn't want to explain that obviously they're keeping this man hostage. So it looks like they're just playing, yeah, some sort of sex game. And she leans into that and is like, yeah, I am into M&Ms now. <laughs> it's like, she's so cute and I love her so much. And I'm yeah. so glad she was like, fuck you, ex-husband. I'm too good yeah. for you because you are Jane Fonda. Know your worth. She really is. Also, like, dude, it's Jane Fonda. I know, She's right? So no beautiful. one is good enough what for are Jane you Fonda. Doing? This is insane. Who leaves Jane Fonda? I don't insane. know. But anyway, love nine to five. Hundred percent wish it was nominated for Best Picture. Me too. Oh, I will say one thing. I think I mentioned in the beginning, but I'm not sure is a theme for this year iconic openings the yes. openings of so many of these movies is are so good i will say the opening of raging bull mm-hmm. is fantastic the elephant man one is like maybe the most interesting part of the movie mm-hmm. yeah i did i felt like it was all downhill from there i hate to say <laughs> i mean that's fair i think the opening of tess like yeah. i mentioned is great the opening of the shining is super iconic the yep. opening of nine to five has the dolly parton song I, nine to i said five. this to you earlier like if since that was written for the movie, imagine having never heard 9 to 5 and showing up in the theater to watch this movie. And that's the first thing that happens is they play 9 to 5. I would have just been like, this song is a banger. Like, where did this come from? It's incredible. How do I get this song? Yeah, no, it's 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 good. So, yeah, I include that in the excellent openings, primarily for the song. The It's just like over shots of women going to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've said a lot. Did the Oscars get it wrong? It's so funny for this to be our second episode. I don't think they did. No, I think they did the right thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been mad about Raging Bull. Obviously, it's still super, you know, talked about and relevant. But Ordinary People's fucking good. And if you think Ordinary People is not good, you haven't watched it. There's no That's true. way all these people. I think most of the people saw Raging Bull, loved Raging Bull, and were like, how could anything else have won? Ordinary People must suck. And I just, that logic does not track Right. Watch Ordinary People. And I think at this point, Scorsese is Scorsese. And nobody's Robert Redford is not. (laughs) Well, but he's not great American director Robert Redford. So I think people also interact with things like, oh, Scorsese, you should have, you know, and we know that Scorsese didn't get the Oscar love you should have gotten. Most people feel throughout his career, just sort of generally. So I think there's also. Very late. His a bit of a chip on the soldier, soldier, the chip, chip on, on the, the shoulder, <laughs> chip on the shoulder around that. Now we get to the most important part of this podcast. This is where we normally would ask, should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year? But since he was only alive for 12 days in 1980, he probably was not eligible for any of these roles. And we have decided to start asking if that is the case, what role should he have played from these movies that came out in 1980? What role would Jake Gyllenhaal have crushed? Crushed. (laughs) Because I think 
he would have been great at a lot of them, as I always think. But mm-hmm. one in particular stands out to me as the correct choice. I don't know what you yes. have in your mind. But the the role that stands out to me as something where were he the correct age that he would have crushed is the Timothy Hutton role in Ordinary People. Yes. I, I think mean, that's come fair. on. He would I can been see incredible. him in it. I can see all of it. I can see him in the therapy scenes. I can see him in the mad at his parents scenes. I can see him all emotional. I can see him being awkward with the girl that he's trying to date. Oh, yeah. All of it plays. Yeah. He would have crushed oh, it. Oh, God. The scene in Ordinary People where they're taking pictures. Donald Sutherland's like, take a picture with Conrad. Oh, my God. <sighs> that scene was insane. People, you have to watch Ordinary People. There's a scene where they're all taking holiday pictures. And Donald Sutherland wants to take a picture of Mary Tyler Moore and Timothy Hutton. And she straight up refuses to take a picture yeah. with her son. She's like, no, she no, won't no. Get near him. I want to get a take a picture of all of you men together. No, no. And it's like at first Donald Sutherland tries to push through and he's like, oh, it'll be great. No problem. But and he like also can't get the camera to work. So it's taking forever. Yes. And it's just this awkwardness of her visibly not wanting to stand next to her son. <laughs> and yeah. it's like the most painful thing I've ever and seen. And it's one of Conrad's first explosions. Like he's working through being able to express anger in yeah. therapy and he's just like, give her the fucking camera. And everyone's like, oh, and everyone's like, whoa, Conrad, where'd that come from? God, that scene was good. I'm glad we remembered to talk about that. Yeah. Jill and Hall would have crushed it, <laughs> of yeah. course. Anything else before we move on to a conclusion section? I don't think so. I think we've talked quite a bit about these films. I mean, yeah. honestly, I could do like a step through step discussion of ordinary people just talking about all the scenes, scene but scene. we don't have time. Yeah, we won't subject you to that unless you want us to do a separate ordinary people episode. So here are the questions for the conclusion. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies and rewatching them? I do. I mean, I've seen The Shining multiple times. Sure already i've seen the empire strikes back multiple times also i'm gonna be watching nine to five i promise you that yeah but i i do want to rewatch ordinary people i've been thinking about it that was the movie in this set that i watched first so it's been a few weeks and like i can't stop thinking about it i want to revisit it i want to look at these characters again also knowing the full story and like dig into the performances more yeah yes and looking for the nuance in each scene yeah so i think to me that's that's stands out as like yep you what do you see yourself revisiting nine to five i also have seen the shining multiple times i've seen i'm sure empire strikes back multiple times but i also want to rewatch ordinary people man i i want to get the nuance i want to see the layers there's so much subtlety to all the performances Mm -hmm. it's so good i want to cry again yeah i mean i wouldn't hate rewatching raging bull but I don't think I'm going to like run out to do it immediately. Maybe when I encounter someone who hasn't seen it and wants to watch it, I'd be like, hey, let's rewatch it. I'll sit Rage down with you. Yeah. Yeah. So have we learned anything? Again, we're trying to put together our theories of what makes the best picture as we do this podcast. I don't know how much more we have, how much closer we have gotten to that goal over the course of these movies. Well, you know, I, I think we're going to explore this throughout, but it, this calls into question conventional wisdom about what are like the worst Oscar wins. Apparently people are not always right about that because ordinary people is not a bad best picture. People are just confused because they can't hold in their mind two ideas at the same time. (laughs) So, you know, we'll, as much as this podcast is called the Oscars got it wrong, it is a bit of a pithy title, right? Mm -hmm. So like, 
Sometimes hey, they, they get, get it wrong, wrong plenty. We will be getting around. Oh, we're to gonna that. run into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this first couple of episodes we've been like, not bad. Not right. bad, guys. Yep. Okay. What's wrong with the nominees this year? Sure. So there's definitely some there's things that. that were not nominated that should have been. Yeah. But the ultimate winner, I can't complain. No, I'm and not I bad. hope I hope people come around on it and actually watch ordinary people and go like, oh no, yeah, it was it's good. It's good. <laughs> Are we seeing any patterns? For me, the main pattern of this year is teenage girls in 1980 are not safe. Not that they're safe now, no. but they were not safe then because most of the movies involved teenagers getting married and or raped or both by older men. And multiple nominees were raping people in real life. <laughs> it's just like, and they're all teenagers. They're all 13 and 14 and 15 years old. Youch, people. Yikes. We're always also always tracking the angry white guys. How many angry white guys do we have in these movies? Several. Several. Obviously, you've got your raging bull. I think Tommy Lee Jones is not not angry <laughs> in Coal Miner's Daughter. It's true. Um, but I will say Raging Bull is the only one where the angry white guy is the main character. That's true. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by angry white guy. He's the most, like, stereotypical exactly what we're talking about with angry white guys. I mean, Timothy Hutton's pretty angry, but it, it makes sense that he is. <laughs> Not in a toxic <laughs> Max Steel anyway. In fact, in the opposite, because he learns to process his exactly. emotions. Exactly. It's about learning to process your emotions. It's beautiful. You're right. Raging Bull is the only one where he's the star. Other than The Shining, but that's not a nominee. Well, I don't even know if he's the main character. I think Danny's the main character. He's the one who shines. It's through the lens of Danny. He shines. And he's not angry. No, he's a little boy. He's a little boy. (laughs) He's a little boy having a bad time. Such a bad time. Never going back to that hotel. Okay. So I feel good. We've said a lot. We've said it all. There's nothing left to say. There's nothing left to say. What are we talking about next time? This is going to be a fun one for us. I know you have a lot of opinions thoughts, about people. this year, Madeline. Next up, we are doing a more recent year. We're jumping decades ahead in time to the 80th Academy Awards, which uh, honors the films of 2007. Mm-hmm. The nominees were Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, and There Will Be Blood. So how many of these have you seen I going seen into next week? three of them. All right. I won't tell you which three. I, too, have seen three of them, but not the same three. But again, it's a secret which ones we've seen. So we'll get into that in two weeks. Yes. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, thoughts, anything to say about Raging Bull, I guess people have a lot to say about it. If there's any movies that we didn't cover from this year that you're like, oh, boy, you should have watched. 100%. That's what I want to know. Tell us, and you can do that by emailing us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.